I cannot hear you guys. You can't hear us at all, Corey? This is going to be fun. <laughs> guys are kind of going in and out. Yeah. Corey, close, close your, you're playing the Myth RPG online. Still, still there? Close that, and that'll give you more bandwidth. <laughs> Hang on, guys. I'm going to see if we can reconnect one more time with Corey. That's hilarious. There's nothing. There's no, first of all, the. Sorry. <laughs> First of all, there is no mist on. There is no online mist. If there were, you'd know about it. You fool. Okay. Right, yeah. Add him one more time. Jackass. Hey everybody and welcome to our special roundtable podcast where we will be discussing Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. Uh, joining me this week for this podcast is uh, our regular, three of our regular film nerds contributors. We've got Graham Flanagan on the line from New York City. We've got Ben Flanagan coming in from, uh, are you in Montgomery today, Ben? Tuscaloosa tonight. In, in Tuscaloosa, Okay. And uh, and also from Tuscaloosa, presumably we've also got Corey Kraft with us. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Yeah. Sure. Good to be here. Yeah. All right. Well, um, as I as I just mentioned on Twitter before we started this podcast, Corey has won the right to answer the first question of the podcast by referencing educating Rita on Twitter. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Corey, I want to start off by um, by talking about. Um, the something that, that you and I have discussed before, um, which is, I guess you could call it kind of the mom factor. And that, that's something that has come up with uh, kind of art house movies that seem to do well with mainstream audiences. And the, the way the way I've heard you put it before is my mom, my mom would like that. And I, I think that's kind of a good uh, assessment of because I think it's fair to say at this point that uh, – you know, regardless of the extent of its success, and we'll get into that later, Midnight in Paris is a is a very successful Woody Allen movie, and and a very successful independent film, regardless of of any other you know stipulations you want to put on it. Um, I mean, w- w- let's let's start off by talking about what is it, Corey, about this movie that has made it such a such a big hit with people who don't typically want to go see. Woody Allen movies. Well, I, I think first of all, you've got you've got a really appealing cast to, let's say, people who don't typically see Woody Allen movies in sort of a a considerably more lighthearted sort of thing than he's made recently. Um, probably his most lighthearted movie since I guess Scoop with the, the last comedy, um, and, and and it's. I don't know. It has it has the sense of optimism that his movies uh, will sometimes have, but haven't really had lately. Uh, couple that with, I guess, a cast that would would draw in people to see a movie, you know, that they know nothing about, uh, and and a movie that just makes you feel good at the end. You know, it, it just gets word of mouth that uh, I think is um, is really propelled audiences to see this. And I think you know a lot of people's moms would like this movie. Uh, you know, it, it's made so much money and it's caught on, I guess, with a public, like you said, that wouldn't see a Woody Allen movie typically. 
So you got to imagine they're pretty pleased with that. Yeah, I actually just got a text from my dad about a half an hour before we started recording this podcast to tell me that he had just seen Midnight in Paris, and this is a guy who has this is this is his first Woody Allen movie. And my dad watches wow. movies. He's just he's never been interested in seeing a Woody Allen movie before, and he would he presumed that it's just not something you would like based on what he knew about Woody Allen. Um, but for whatever reason, I mean this that that's this movie is is making people who say, I don't like Woody Allen movies, decide, well, I'm going to see this one, though. Um, ben, uh, we, we mentioned this a second ago, but this movie's picking up a lot of steam as far as the box office goes. It's already up to, the, the, the current estimate is, has it at uh, 33 million, uh, 33.6, actually. And that, this is domestically, we're talking. It's made another 30 um, worldwide. But... Uh, and right now, the the thing everybody's kind of talking about, or I guess people who are who watch, uh, follow Woody Allen's career, is that this thing might be creeping up towards uh, the Woody Allen's career record, which is Hannah and her sisters at forty million, um, and it would be a big deal to see Woody Allen at this stage in his career have his biggest hit of his career to date. Um, I've seen you out there on social media, Ben, saying. It ain't going to happen. Has has the last week changed your mind at all about that? Well, remind me what the number is right now. Well, right now it's at 33.6, and that's that's just counting Saturday. Um, and so basically 40, 40 is what, is what you got to hit to make it the biggest Woody Allen uh, hit of all time. Well, what I'm seeing here on uh, it's what forty, I guess forty flat is what Hannah and her sisters made. That's We're right, thirty three for Midnight in Paris. At this point, I think yeah, it could happen, but I think that its head of steam is starting to uh, lose a little speed uh, right now. But I think if this movie manages to carry on over into the Oscar season and its word of mouth, which I think the bulk of its box office is coming from. If the, word, if the word of mouth continues after it racks up any nominations, at this point, I, I think it might only muster a screenplay nomination. I think had they kept the 10-nominee format, it might have snuck in there because it's still going strong at this point. And more people are talking about this than they are Tree of Life right now, which I think says a lot about its chances this fall. I hate to disappoint Corey with that possibility. But, no, you're you're right. You're you're totally correct. Yeah, um, but again, we get back to word of mouth, and it's extremely strong. I was in Chattanooga yesterday and today, and one of my um, cousins, one of my dad's cousins, I was speaking with him, and he told us and he's probably approaching fifty by now, and he he just said we saw that Midnight in Paris, and we just loved it. And this isn't a typical Woody Allen fan; it's just somebody who had heard it was good, went to see it for themselves and loved it and is now telling other people how good it is. And that's, again, probably how they heard about it. This is probably the most talked-about movie that's been slightly under the radar since Black Swan, I would say, from last fall. And everybody that I talk to that has heard of it or says that they've seen it, they've all liked it. I have yet to meet somebody who does not like it. So to answer your question, if it's at 33 and all it needs is seven million more, I think yes, it's possible. Right now, I think if I had to, if I had to make a guess, it'll fall right at 40 or just short. Graham, do you want to do you want to chime in on this at all? I mean, I'm looking at the the last three weeks, I guess, which is when it went wide officially. June the the June 10th, the week of June 10th, it it went up to 
over 900 screens, and, and it's been over that ever since for the last three weeks. And I, I'm looking at 8.4 million, 7.5 million, 6.1 million. Now, that's your Ben is right that there's some drop off, but that's not a lot of drop off. Well, you know, again, you say word of mouth. I, I also think that the Moody has a, a strong return view. Uh, a lot of people are going back, myself included. I've been back three. I've been back twice. I've seen it three times in all. And the Friday night, I was at the uh, Angelica uh, Art House Multiplex in New York, and um, there were a lot of people in line to see it. And uh, in, in the New York Times today, their their ad for it is kind of advertising it in that way. It's like visit and then come back. They're trying to get people to come back again and again. For me, it, personally, I think that that. It got better every time I saw it. You're going to see a lot of that, especially in the, the larger markets. People are going to go see it. People are going to say, uh, you know what, I'm going to go back and see that again with my friends that I haven't seen it with. I think it's going to do it. Uh, you know, I, I, But Ben makes a good point of that um, he's just short because um, you look at the numbers, you know, compared to the word of mouth themselves. I mean, you're talking about what did it pull in this week, man? I mean, just just over a million, something like that? I mean. Uh, what are we looking at? Yeah, this this week actually, well, the the week are you talking about the weekend or the or the full the weekend? Week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think the the weekend gross is going to be something like, uh, hang hang on, let me let me pull it up here while we're talking. But yeah, it's gonna it's gonna end up actually being uh, about three point four million for the for the Fourth of July oh, wow, weekend. Okay. Wow, good. Well, that, I think that's – is that actually an increase uh, over – No, it was 4 point – it's 4.1 oh, okay. last week, but it's okay. not – again, well, look, it's, it's kind of nickel and dime in its way up there, and it's not losing no, a lot of steam. No, that's not nickel and dime. I mean, look, at, at that rate, I think you're gonna, it's probably just going to drop down to, you know, around three and two, and then and then one week after that. And by that point, you know, when you add what it made during the week, you're yeah, I think it's going to be $40 million for sure. And, uh, Matt, I wanted to ask you, you said your dad texted you uh, about the movie earlier? Yeah. Was the text in Italian? <laughs> <laughs> he was. Uh, I, this, is a, this has nothing to do with this, with this podcast, but the, the text right after that he told me, right after we finished talking about this movie, the text after that, was a picture he took at the fireworks store of a package called the Godfather package of fireworks. You can't write this stuff. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, um, so anyways, back to this movie. Um, one of the one of the things that, and because we're all, I think we're all pretty pretty solid Allen geeks here, um, uh, and and I want to talk about comparing compare, sorry comparing this to. Some other films in in Alan's past, and and one of the ones that comes up that's kind of the obvious comparison is Purple Rose of Cairo because of the kind of uh, the, the I guess the period elements, but also the um, the sort of mixing of of fantasy with reality. It's there's very similar themes, but I you know uh, those are pretty pretty obvious comparisons. I want to talk to you guys about are there any other movies from Alan's career that that this movie brought up for you guys that, that, that you guys thought this sort of uh, maybe touched on something similar other than Purple Rose. And I guess we'll start with, um, we'll start with you, Graham. Yeah. I mean, I would say uh, it was most obvious, but then again, I, 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 at one point I started to divide 
all of Woody Allen's movies into one of two categories, either optimistic or pessimistic. And I think this definitely falls in the, the optimistic category, whereas Purple Rose of Cairo, while it shares a lot of the similar uh, elements of fantasy uh, and imagination, uh, you know, definitely falls into the pessimistic category because in the end she's left alone and has to deal with reality. Um, whereas this movie ends, you know, a different way, but Alice is one that comes up, um, where in that movie, uh, she has the ability to fly to become invisible. Uh, so that's one that initially comes to mind. I'm interested to hear what you guys had to say about that. Yeah. Hey, ben, let me interrupt, Matt. Let go me ahead. Interrupt. Um, Ben Stark just, uh, sent me a message asking if he could hop into this thing. So can I add him? Yeah. Bring no. Stark, bring Stark in. Yeah. God. I like the the last minute guest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this like doesn't happen. Show in the early seventies, right? With like, uh, Dom DeLuise and Burt Reynolds just hanging out. <laughs> Hello? 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 And that, with that very mature greeting, welcome to the podcast, Ben Stark. Was everybody doing that? <laughs> Yeah, Corey might not have been doing one. I don't know. No, I wasn't. Yeah, Corey's voice just sounds like a bad start. (laughs) (laughs) That was his start when he was like, "No, I wasn't." That was his good start. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, so we've we've added another one to the podcast, and I guess um, what we were what we were talking about actually when you when you just walked in, Ben, uh, was that uh, we, we were we were saying, you know, kind of the obvious comparison among other Woody Allen movies uh, to Midnight in Paris is Purple Rose of Cairo. But I, I was wondering if any if you might have uh, another film from from Allen's filmography that that you think also uh, maybe this this bears some resemblance to or just any any other films from his uh, from his career that this movie sort of reminds you of. Uh, not really. I think that's probably the, the best comparison I can think of. Just kind of a, a magical, a magical realist Alan movie. I can't um, think of any other real uh, magical realist movies of his in general. I'd maybe Stardust Network. Well, Shadows and Fog was one, although that's a very strange really? movie for him. But I, there was just, just I guess the the idea of kind of this, this European landscape, I guess, and and the way some of the uh, the characters in the in the flashback sequences here are a little bit surreal at times and not just dolly but i mean you know the way the way hemingway sort of speaks it's it's definitely not meant to be a realistic portrayal of ernest hemingway or anything like that so i don't know that was that was something that jumped out to me a little bit yeah i could definitely see the shadows and fog comparison yeah anybody anybody else want to want to chime in i guess just as far as where this fits into to alan's filmography i mean graham graham mentioned that it's more one of his more optimistic um, films, but I mean, really, this is kind of going against type from what he's been doing the last ten years, for sure. Yeah, uh, I was, I was going to say, I mean, it, it, it has the sense of uh, nostalgia, obviously, that that sort of characterizes Radio Days. So you could say that's more autobiographical. And I also thought, I mean, as Graham said, of Alice and uh, Oedipus Rex is short from uh, the New York series uh, film, um, both sort of magical realist uh, films that employ magical devices in their plots. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Midbet in Paris does ultimately, I guess, kind of stand alone, you know, in the uh, European filmmaking phase of his career as sort of the magical realism example that we've had so far, with possible exception of the sort of uh, supernatural leanings of Scoop, but nobody counts Scoop, so let's not even talk about that. Ian Ian McShane in there. Yeah, well, you know, Scoop, there are things to like about Scoop. I really do think that there are, but I think that the, the way it sort of mixes the supernatural elements is a little clunkier than he does here. He just really slides into it very naturally, and I think he... He does that to an extent in a Midsummer Night Sex comedy, too, sort of down the stretch. I think there are moments of Stardust Memories that sort of, uh, you know, walk in and out of reality. So, it, but then there are also things in this that remind me of Hannah and her sisters, you know, just certain themes and um, certain, uh, certain bits about the mood of this movie. <clears throat> I think that there's sort of a collection of um, different things you'll find in the rest of this filmography you'll find here. Love and Death, there are some things. Um, but no, yeah, this is, I think Purple Rose of Cairo is as close as you're going to get. I watched that movie the day after I saw Midnight in Paris, and I've only seen Midnight in Paris one time. Unfortunately, it's left all the theaters that, uh, near me. Sadly, a lot of the box office is going to see a bit of a drop-off. But um, I think you kind of have um, the yin and yang in terms of uh, Woody Allen's best fantasy films with and Midnight in Paris, as Graham said, you have this optimism versus pessimism or cynicism sort of uh, aspect to each of those movies that's really beautiful. It's kind of it's really nice to have both, and they would work really nicely as a double feature, I think. I want to talk casting for a minute because I think that's, uh, and, and Corey mentioned this, that I think that's a big part of uh, why this movie is is could possibly turn out to be his biggest hit ever. And, um, you know, I think maybe there were some of us that were a little bit skeptical about those casting choices when we first started hearing about this movie, especially that, that Owen Wilson was the lead who I think, you know, at least I feel iffy about him, uh, mostly for, you know, for the length of his career. But I, I think Owen Wilson was, you know, surprisingly perfect for this movie and, and just something about him, being in that main role just really worked for me in this movie, and I really wouldn't mind seeing him again as an Allen male lead. Um, I guess let, let's let's start with let's start with um, but, Corey. But but Corey, why why do you think why did Owen Wilson work so well here? What 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 about him uh, makes him a good fit for an Allen screenplay? Well, I, you know, I I don't know. I've I've read and listened to a lot of interviews with Woody Allen for this uh, for this movie, in which he says that the character was, you know, initially conceived somewhat differently. But when Owen Wilson and this sort of, uh, I guess, loser West Coast surfer guy persona boarded the project, the you know, it's not that the character was necessarily changed to to accommodate that, but maybe there was some adjustment. You know, maybe it feels more natural that Owen Wilson is really playing. Woody Allen here uh, as much as some of the other Allen male leads have in the past. Uh, I mean, he, he, he basically is playing himself to be perfectly honest, but there's something about uh, Owen Wilson's natural persona uh, meshed with Allen's words that really works. It's really charming. Matt, can I uh, follow that? Cause I have to go here. Yeah, go ahead, man. Unfortunately. Okay. Um, I think the reason Owen Wilson works so well here 
is because he's channeling uh, to his strengths. You know, he's not channeling Woody Allen. He's channeling what Owen Wilson does well. Where you know we we've seen him be a great actor. Obviously, you said he's he can be somewhat of a warning sign for you. But I mean, if we look back at something like uh, his work with Wes Anderson specifically, Bottle Rocket, Royal Tenenbaums, and Darjeeling Limited, we know this guy can act. He he can be great. As a matter of fact, but I look back at Woody Allen's movies where he hasn't been in them, and there has been this surrogate, so to speak, and we've seen failures in things like Melinda and Melinda, and in some of his other movies, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, to some extent, and uh, some of the other ones, uh, anything else, I think, especially, even though um, Woody Allen's in the movie, obviously Jason Biggs is trying to play Woody Allen, which is always... A bad thing. Kenneth Branagh did it kind of well, I think. But the successes are Sean Penn, Jonathan Reese Myers, John Cusack, and now Owen Wilson. It's because they play to their strengths. They do what they normally do, and they apply their technique without channeling the mannerisms and the stutters of Woody Allen. I think we get that to a very small extent. Midnight in Paris, there are some moments where Owen Wilson's like, you know, doing the whole stuttering thing um, that so many people try to do just because they're in a Woody Allen movie. But I think for the most part, I think you only get about 2% and the rest of the 98 is Owen Wilson being Owen Wilson. And that applies itself so well to this story. I don't think it could get any better. So... Yeah, I agree. Well, I can I from, uh, what, uh, in this movie, can you give me an example of a time when you thought Owen Wilson was kind of at his best in the just a particular scene from the film? Um, I think he's at his best when he's in Paris after midnight. I really do. When when he's talking with Hemingway, when he's chatting with Gertrude Stein, his scenes with Marion Cotillard, I think, are great when they're walking just through the streets of Paris at night. I think that's um, Owen Wilson at his best. And again, I've only seen this movie one time, so my memory is a little foggy on certain dialogue and things. But just when he's having conversations, especially that conversation with uh, Marion Cotillard where she tells him, um, you're interesting in a lost way. I think that's it's just great. And uh, once they start getting into the, the themes of the movie a little more later in the film, when they start talking about living in the now instead of living in the past, um, I think he's excellent. I think it's just great acting. And Marion Cotillard, too, and I don't mean to get away from the point, but I think that she's one of Woody Allen's most interesting characters in a long time because it's she, she's doing things in this movie that we haven't yet seen a character in a Woody Allen movie do before. I think that I really agree his, with that. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think that in his in his recent films over the uh, last decade, anyway, and to some degree in the 1990s, we would see a lot of female characters sort of behave in similar ways. They, they would have similar jobs. They would um, speak uh, with a similar affect. And, uh, you know, they would be depressed. They would be pill heads. Uh, they would be trying to be, uh, you know, finish their novels or, uh, you know, they would fail at auditions, things like that. But to me, this is just a completely uh, new thing for Woody Allen. And I think Marion Cotillard obviously fits in his world beautifully. But um, I just, I, I couldn't reach into his catalog and find a character that was similar. I'm sure there are, I, there, there I, probably is one or two. Because I've got a, I've got a suggestion for that, actually, Ben. I, I think Marion Cotillard in this movie is the female version of uh, the, the the fantasy Jeff Daniels from Purple Rose of Cairo. <laughs> 
I think she might – you kind of – Ben, I mean, do you think she might be similar to Ariel Weymouth? You know, because in this you have many characters after the same woman, and she's not necessarily a, a unreliable pillhead type. She's just kind of a free spirit that, that multiple male characters in the movie uh, get obsessed with and multiple characters that we don't see, uh, like Modigliani, right. et cetera. <laughs> right. Ariel, is that from Midsummer Night Sex Comedy? Yeah, yeah, Mia, Mia Farrow, Farrow's character. Yeah, where she has Woody Allen, Tony Roberts, and uh, Jose Ferrer all, all, uh, all about it. <laughs> yeah, and in this you've got Picasso, Hemingway, and Owen Wilson all kind of going after her, and then and and, and you know and yeah. and maybe some undercurrents of the bullfighter too. <laughs> right. They have a little moment. They have a little moment there. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that I think that yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good comparison, but. It's just refreshing, and it's refreshing casting because I think she's such a fantastic actress, and you put her in pretty much anything right now, and she's going to do well. But I think they line up considerably well. And again, Matt, you, you, or someone said you hope that Owen Wilson and Woody Allen work together again. I hope uh, he and Marion Cotillard uh, team back up because I think it's a really solid match. Um, but Matt, I, have to, I, I do yeah, have we'll to let go you now. we'll I'm let sorry. you go, Ben. Uh, yeah, well, Graham, you know, you you mentioned a second ago just talking about um, a, a couple of scenes where we thought Owen Wilson was really at his best. There's a couple to me that stick out in this movie. And uh, one of them is the, the scene where he takes Rachel McAdams to the, the little corner, the little alleyway where he, where he sort of gets introduced to the time warp or whatever it is. And, uh, and he's sort of telling her like, Oh, you got to wait. You, you got to see this. It's going to be awesome. And he's sort of hyping it up to her. And uh, I don't know. There's something about that that's really that's really amusing to me because he's just so overly enthusiastic about it, and uh, and just I, I'm not even sure that I think that's just kind of a scene where you need Owen Wilson for that scene to work. I don't think I don't think even Woody in that in that role would have would have made that scene as funny as it is because you really need that kind of like youthful enthusiasm to make that scene work. And uh, and the other scene that stuck out to me was, and it's really harkens back to early funny uh, Woody Allen is the um, the scene where uh, I, I guess it's like you could call it the the earrings scene where the the, the parents and um, Rachel McAdams have come back early, and he was about to to take her earrings and bring them to Marion Cotillard, and basically there's this sort of all kinds of chaos ensuing in the hotel room and, and uh, Owen Wilson just sort of running around frantically trying to solve three problems at the same time. I, I thought he was really good in both of those scenes. Yeah, and, and you got to think too, it's like this This got to be an interesting from an actor's perspective because a lot, you know, oftentimes uh, and one actor kind of has to be the center of attention for the entire movie, you know, the protagonist. And in this case, the protagonist just jumps into this fantasy world and is surrounded by all this, you know, all these different attractions, all these different people and, you know, crazy characters. And so Owen Wilson just kind of has to exist and let those characters kind of um, do their little solos, you know, if you want to talk about it in like musical terms, you know, and kind of hang back and let these actors like like Adrian Brody and, and then uh, the Corey Stoll as Hemingway and uh, Zelda Fitzgerald, Allison Pill, Zelda Fitzgerald. She was kind of hanged back. She was great, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Ben Stark, we haven't really talked to you much yet, but I, I want to ask you, out of the out of the Paris flashback sequences, um, 
what stood out to you about that and which characters, I guess, and, and moments um, particularly struck you as, as effective, I guess? Uh, definitely, uh, definitely Adrian Brody as Dolly. That, that, that was easily the funniest part of the movie for me. And I, I felt like it was the, the point in, in the, the, the time, uh, where it, it really felt at the height of its kind of vibrancy, not to say the the rest of it wasn't, but that, that part made me wish that more of the movie did, did kind of take place there. And I could, uh, that like the kind of whimsy that you had there kind of weirdness uh something i i I really liked a lot and i i kind of wish that dolly had kind of gotten back into it somehow but i also understand you just kind of a a side character it was good it felt like kind of one of those moments where like i think that that moment better than any of the other moments really has that uh feels like a late night out like you just we know about about 3 a.m where you could just run into anything uh and and you know it's just kind of that that it, and it's perfect because it's it's a surrealist there. So you know it's it's just kind of that that great uh, late night trip kind of feel to it. Yeah, and I love the you know that they that they had um, uh, uh, just uh, Lou Bunnell in there too. Right. And, yeah. And get the get the whole plot of uh, discreet charm at the end. Right. All right. Hang on one second. I got to add Graham back in. Hey man, sorry about that. Okay. All right. Um. Yeah. Well, uh, Graham Ben was. I mean, Ben was talking about the uh, the Dolly sequence, and mm-hmm. um, I, I guess can you can you take me through? I guess out of the you ran through them briefly, but out of all of the sort of historical characters, which what was your favorite performance out of all of those guys? Hemingway. Um. Easily Hemingway, and I, I I'd really if I if I worked for Sony Pictures. I would be just really campaigning to get this guy, Corey Stoll, uh, a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, his Oscar, he's great throughout the entire thing, uh, but my favorite scene is is when he picks up Owen Wilson in the car at midnight. Um, I think it's the second or third night that he goes back in time, but he, he gives this this description of a, a scene from World War One that sounds like it could have come from Farewell to Arms, and uh, and then he goes on about how true love should be made and how you should you should lose your fear of death when you make love. I think that you know that that, that part has gotten huge laughs at, at uh, the screenings I've I've attended because I think that it just for anybody that's ever read any of Hemingway's right, stuff, yeah. it just nails it. It's a great spoof. Uh, of, but you know, it's not. It's a spoof. I mean, it's very realistic. You could pick up any book, but just because of that scene and that actor's performance, I think that um, this movie owes a lot to and even references Hemingway's book, uh, A Movable Feast, which is kind of his memoir of living in Paris during this era, and it brings up his interactions with Gertrude Stein, with Scott Fitzgerald and others, you know, not featured in the movie. Uh, Ezra Pound is one that he mentions, but, you know, that, for me, he, he kind of embodies the spirit of, of the time that Woody Allen was going for and, and guy that got to kind of be the own, the actual Owen Wilson of that period where he could just kind of roam around and, and interact with all these figures, you know? And, and, uh, so but it was nailed 
by Woody Allen's script by this this actor um, who I, unfortunately I've been on a TV and he was on Law and Order L.A. which canceled. He was like the lead on that apparently, but really looking forward to seeing this guy working uh, in the future. Yeah, he's done a lot of. He's basically just been a career uh, TV actor from this point. Uh, but but I mm-hmm. think I think he definitely did a good job, and that 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 monologue is probably the least obscure literary reference that that Alan has ever put in a movie. It, you know, it's <laughs> I think it's 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 tough to drop a literary reference like that in a movie, but I think still it's one that most most audience members are still probably going to get it, and they're going to get the joke. They're you know they're not going to feel left out. Well, here's here's my experience. I've only seen this movie once to you, but. I've, that's my favorite scene in the movie for every you know for the reasons that Graham said, and you know in my screening I'm I was probably the only person laughing like throughout that whole thing, uh, and and then again at a lot of the other sort of literary jokes and uh, and references that that are made throughout the movie. So so I guess the question that I want to pose to you guys is, despite well this is just one screening obviously in which. People didn't really laugh at those jokes, but they all still walked out of the movie agreeing that it was pretty good. That it, you know they enjoyed it, they thought it was funny. So, so how do you how do you do that? How do you have that experience? I guess without uh, laughing at at the really over the top Hemingway portrayal or Salvador Dali. Is it okay to enjoy this movie without really understanding? who these people are because I, I don't I don't really understand that. Yeah, I don't think it depends. I don't think this is a movie that depends on the humor and I, cause I don't think it's a straight comedy. I think it's very funny, but I don't think you need jokes for it to have appeal because I think thematically it's talking about, even though it's an optimistic movie, it's talking about something that is, uh, that I think hits a lot of people. And it's an, it's a, um, I think it's just an idea that, that American audiences are going to click with this, just this idea of, uh, of being, uh, wrapped up with, uh, you know, with nostalgia and and the idea that you could be freed from it and that somehow your your life could be improved if you uh, if you didn't wax nostalgic so often. Uh, I just think that's I I think this is a movie that's succeeding with audiences because of the premise less so than because of individual jokes. Yeah, it speaks to people. It speaks to uh, a basic you know, need or, or curiosity that every, everybody has. And, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know what Angel was, but on for a minute, uh, when, when Owen Wilson's his pitch to, to, uh, Boone well, but the movie, I wasn't familiar with that movie. That lasted like a minute. And, and I know that a lot of other people didn't get that, either, you know, but yet they still, you know, it didn't matter to them. It didn't ruin the experience. That's, I totally agree with you, Matt. I think that this, just speaks to something that, that everyone has maybe thought about or uh, kind of <laughs> wondered, you know, could they, yeah. could they get, what would it like to live in a different time period? And you contrast the, the, the fantasy sequences with the present day stuff. And I think a lot of the present day stuff, especially with parents, gets some of the biggest laughs. Did that sad, well, that, that and, the, and not, the movie. We haven't even talked about Michael Sheen yet, but I think that right. that was definitely the biggest laughs for me in the movie was his character because it's just that that classic Woody Allen douche character that you have to have in every <laughs> comedy, you know. Um, the Alvin, Alan Alda. Yeah, he's the Alan Alda. Ben Stark. Movie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do have. I wish I had that beard, man. 
<laughs> Slightly tannic. Yeah, I love that he was doing an American accent too, by the way. I, I was not expecting him to play American. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look. He, he, he it's like, you know, he, he kind of disappears through the movie. Man, he, I'm right at this same thing. Should he get the nomination over Corey Stoll if you're talking about our uh, best supporting actor? And I'd also throw Adrian Brody in there. But, man, he is a great villain. Yeah, Michael Sheen is just a great – he's just a really fun, uh, nasty character. Um, you know, Graham, I, I think the um, – I think the the one other thing that that you were talking about a second ago, just this idea of um, that that the theme, I guess, is is what's more successful here to me. And I, I think this probably has a lot to do with why my dad and and people of his generation are seeing it. Um, to me, kind of, uh, and I don't I don't want to demean this movie by by uh, referencing this, but uh, I the, the thing that I kind of thought of after I saw this movie was Groundhog Day. And I, and I only say that because I think it's, it's a movie that it's a funny movie, but the, the premise could have, I, I think you could have written it differently with fewer jokes and it still would have worked with people, uh, especially with that generation with, with kind of our parents generation. And uh, I don't know. I, I think this is just the, this is a kind of a unique uh, situation where like a lot of the, like a lot of Alan's films from the eighties, it's it's a premise that's so strong um, that I think I think it was always going to succeed whether it was one of Alan's sharper screenplays or not or, or whether the cast was particularly strong or not. I, I just think this was a, a very commercial sounding premise. I think you just pitch this idea to people and they it's a movie they want to see. Yep, high concept, uh, high concept movie, and the concept world. And it, you know, to me, like it's very rare that I go to see movies. I think that the last time was There Will Be Blood. Um, it's wow. and for and you know that's it, it's tough. It's tough to but, but this movie just keeps calling me back. I'll probably see it again. You know, I mean, it's just you get it's even within the movie. It little things like leave you unsatisfied. He'll reference travels that he's had uh, where you don't you don't get to see it. He references Faulkner at one point. Um, we don't get to see that, and it just it lets you just kind of imagine all these other little tangents I've been able to take, and it it makes you think, wow, what if I was there? You know, what, where, who would I run into? Or, uh, and then he's got these little quick references, like uh, you know, Juno Barnes, who it was a major major figure in that era, in that you know, in that place, in that time. But he'll just randomly reference it, and it just kind of it allows you to get off on your own little tangent. Like, what would she have been like back then? You know, and it's, it's, so there's just so much, it's, it really is. It's like a, it's like a meal, you know, it's just, uh, there's so much going on here that I think that, you know, the more you see it, the better. Um, and I think it's, it personally, it's easily the best film of the year. And, and, and I'm interested to see what you guys think about that and to see how, what kind of legs it's going to have, uh, towards the end of the year. Ben Stark, I want to, I want to hear from you just as far as where do you think this movie's going, I guess, from here on out, it's we we discussed a little bit before you were on the call, kind of the the um, the amount of the amount of money it's made to date and, and how much we think it might make. But but I guess at, let, let's bring your 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 film production expertise into this a little bit. For a guy like Woody Allen, who he's never really had trouble getting his movies made, but we know that he's kind of off on this European uh, excursion the last few years because that's really 
he's he basically has given up, I guess, on on the American producers um, helping him finance these movies. Does does having a movie like this? Do you think this this um, changes his situation? Does it does it give somebody uh, in America the confidence to say, "Hey, let me let me give Alan instead of instead of us giving him thirty, let's give him sixty million and let's let him go get a bunch of big name actors to put in his next movie." Um, honestly, I think I think he's been in this position uh, enough times. I mean, I understand this is kind of like the uh, the biggest one so far. But I think I think more people are probably looking at this as kind of a a sleeper hit than a, a Woody Allen hit. So I think um, honestly, I think the thing he has up his sleeve next is probably going to be different enough from this, where even if he gets the attention from any kind of financiers, they're going to look at it and be like, "Well, this isn't this isn't you know a bubbly Midnight in Paris." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it'll be you know some dark. Uh, like interiors or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> interiors too. Yeah. Owen Wilson and Jennifer Anderson. <laughs> that would be great. My dream, my dream, seriously, is for Woody Allen to remake Hall Pass as a dark, like, drama. Hall Pass. Same concept. Same cast. Get the same cast. And just shoot it as, like, a really hardcore, you know, like, rated R for adult themes. You know, like, that's yeah. it. Shoot, like, shoot it cinema verite again, like, yeah, like husbands and wives, basically. No, it, yeah. it could yeah. be closer, you know, shoot it like closer. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I think it would be great. Yeah. I haven't seen All Pass yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me it's not going to live up to what you've built up in your head. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, does anybody else have any other points they want to they want to make uh, before we wrap up? Are there? Uh, I'm about to. I will say I agree that Corey Stoll should. I hope he gets nominated for supporting. That, that performance is fantastic. Dolly, I mean, Adrian Brody was my my favorite kind of character, but his Hemingway was just like it was like perfect. He didn't. You didn't even need to know it was Hemingway, and you would guess like from the time, <laughs> the place, and that performance that that's who that was. Hey, uh, hey, hey, Graham, as as a as a uh, notorious accent hang-up guy, how did uh, how did Allison Pill do for you, as Zelda Fitzgerald? Uh, it was broad, but the, the the writing was so good that it just it kind of forgave the the caricature that she created and her look, you know. And, and I just, liked her, man. I, I look, I was yeah. I'm, I'm suddenly pumped for her in the in the new Sorkin show. I, I think I think she did a really good job. <laughs> Isn't no, I mean, she also in the next Allen movie too? Wasn't she just cast? In that with Greta Gerwig, am I yeah, mistaken? Right. Yeah. So, so he obviously saw something worthwhile. Yeah. Maybe. Hopefully, she has a fro like she did in Milk in this next one. <laughs> um, but you know, it's. It, it, I, I just think that uh, for me, just seeing those characters brought to life, uh, one of the most thrilling moments for me in this movie. Then I'm sure that I'll have the same the same feeling uh, when I see it again. Is uh, when when we're in that cafe when we first meet Hemingway and then Alan just shifts away from Owen Wilson and just makes it a back and forth conversation between Fitzgerald and Hemingway about you know he, how Hemingway feels about Zelda Fitzgerald and it's just like wow like this is this this is a movie it's in and of itself that you know I can't believe this movie hasn't been made like can you imagine if Woody Allen just made a movie these two characters in this time period I mean and he does it so well it's like every time I've seen it, I'm like I hate being in when Fitzgerald's like 
And it's like, better get out of here and go find Zelda. And then it goes, it goes back to the old Wilson said everything's fine. But in that moment, I'm left a little point. I'm like, God, this is great. I feel like I'm like inside Woody Allen's imagination for those couple of minutes uh, at that point in the film. I could have had a lot more of that, honestly. Um, every every time we went back to the shrewish wife and the parents, I was just like, please, let's go back to like the magical land where we're like, you know, discovering the humanity. Well, exactly what you're saying. It's like there's well, these journal life characters, and we get to meet them. And of course, that's that is the point, which is that you know, if you if you uh, if you could stay back there, everybody would would choose to until they until they realize that, as he says, that they don't have any Novocaine then. So yeah, yeah. Well, well, can, I, okay, can, I, okay, can I go ahead, Corey? I'm sorry. Well, I was, I was going to ask about McAdams and and the parents and the portrayal there. I mean, I, I, I we're all pretty. You're all really big fans of this movie. Uh, I certainly am. But you know, if I've got one little hang up about it, it might be despite the fact that they're playing obvious. You know, Woody Allen types. You see these characters from time to time to time in his movies. Uh, is that is that maybe stacking the deck a little bit? You know, you've got angelic Marianne Cotillard on one side, and then Harpy Rachel McAdams and her horrible parents, who somehow cannot find anything to enjoy about Paris, France. You know, on the other, I maybe maybe that's a little. Certainly, I mean, certainly well, unrealistic to a degree, uh, but also kind of unfair because really you're not – Owen Wilson isn't making a choice. He's just sort of coming to realize what the audience has realized the entire time. I mean it's, it is really broad, Corey, but again, we're talking about that, – that's Alan's that's – Alan, that's, that's perfectly within his established comedic tone that we've right. seen in other movies. I mean – Yeah, yeah. Like, no, I agree. We mentioned, we mentioned Alan Alda in, in – uh, you know, in Hannah and her sisters, and I think that's a very similar. But the difference is that uh, Alan Alda is, is and Michael Sheen are the, the 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 true villains and kind of his the antithesis to the the Owen Wilson Woody Allen character. Yeah, but it, I think they're, it, they're, they're it's, the comedic it's... villain in Woody Allen movies. I mean, you you can find you can find a handful of them in all of his comedies, and I think yeah. they they're always. I mean. Uh, another one, actually, that I didn't mention earlier, but everyone says "I love you" has some European sequences in it, and I think you get you also get that sort of uncomfortable fish out of water, stodgy American in Europe thing going on there too. And uh, I don't know. I, I think I think it's not so. Um, I, I think in a different movie, these characters don't work, but I think in in this in this tone that we've already established, I think I think it's you know it's obviously they are just meant to be broad caricature bad guys and and um you know it doesn't it doesn't really bother me i think it's supposed to be over the top yeah which i'm okay with if it's just the people that he's gotta be up against except for the fact that his fiance is one of those people too that's the part of the movie that i was just like well, i just didn't buy why why was he even there like like two minutes in the movie he should have just walked off a bridge or hooked up with the seventeen year old girl working at the bookstore. You know? <laughs> I just didn't I didn't well, quite no, it, and that's that's where I think the movie is very realistic because I mean people people are in and have been uh, in situations where they they are in certain relationships for convenience, it's gotten to be they get complacent, or because she looks um, like Rachel McAdams. Well, yeah, apologies like, to my wife. Dude, but, yeah. yeah, but he says he's in like, love with her at the beginning. Like, she looks great in the movie, and, and I mean, you know, like Woody Allen. Look, 
two scenes in particular. One where it's a two shot looking forward from behind her and her mom walking, and you see her, she's wearing very tight jeans. Then there's another scene when they're packing their car when they're going some weekend jaunt, the, the one where they well, have to come back catalogs, unexpectedly. Yeah. Well, then, again, it's like she bends over to your butt for like 15 seconds. Right. I think Woody hey. Allen is using those images there. To- hey, Graham, to be fair, you know, when we walked out of the theater, my wife commented on that, and I said something like, yeah, but that, that was in there, but the Louise Bunuel thing, wasn't that awesome? I'm like, So I didn't even notice it. But hey, but it was remarkable. Hey Graham, what does what does Mr. Skin pay you every month to catalog the butt <laughs> shots? The Mr. Skin, the Woody Allen Mr. Skin page. <laughs> that's a that's a small website, huh? Yeah. Like Woody Allen has had uh, what something close to a nude scene in one of his movies. Uh, in uh, Stardust Memories, there's a scene where he's showering with Charlotte Rampling, and every time I see it, I get a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, but can I can I say something? I want to put the nerd and film nerds here for this for this conversation, yeah, and just kind of just want to bring up the the obvious. I mean, this is very obvious comparison between Marianne Cotillard's character here and then uh, her character of Maul in Inception, where they end up doing identical. Basically, both <laughs> characters say, "I want to live. I want to live. Leave reality, and I want to choose to live in this alternate reality, regardless of what the consequences be." Um, they both do that same thing. They they look the same. They do the same thing. Do you guys did you guys pick up on that? I didn't think about it until you just yeah, said. I didn't, it. That's I didn't a good think about point, that either. You 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 said something about it before I saw the movie. So as soon as it came up, I was like, yeah, okay, I can see that. I honestly, when you said when you brought up an Inception comparison when we were talking about it, I expected something a lot bigger than than what is in there. But what is in there, I can definitely see the comparison. Maybe. Maybe that's how Alan got her in the movie. He's, is he told her he was making Inception 2 and that she was contractually obligated. <laughs> she just doesn't know English. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she has no idea what she said in any of her lines. Yeah, movie, she just yeah. memorizes the phonetics of the, of the lines. <laughs> Shows up. Nice. All right, guys. Well, I think we're going to wrap up here. And uh, thanks, everybody, for, for joining me on the podcast. And thanks to Ben Flanagan, who had to duck out a little bit early and um, – Guys, uh, I think we'll I think we'll be um, joining each other again soon for our epic three hour Tree of Life live uh, live cast. We're, we're actually just going to watch the movie all together and Dude, and talk about it while we watch it. So I'm so that down to that. You can't even believe it. <laughs> I want to live joke Tree of Life. Did y'all see uh, the Rotten Tomatoes critical consensus? The blur is. No, what is it? It's. <laughs> Whatever. Z's of life. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thanks again, guys. All right. All right bye. Later. Later.